Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mike Rose Art Show, live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Here I am, and I cut my own hair. Not the best job I've ever done, I'll, I'll admit. I'm not feeling great about it, but cut my own hair. It was finally due. I hadn't had a haircut since the 1st of January, I think it was, approximately. So it's been a good almost 10 months. Anyway, um, apologies for my dog in the background. We have... Emma's having a friend play and they're afraid of dogs. And so our dog is quarantined to the backyard. And so you may see him running around back there and barking, trying to get in because he doesn't like to be left alone. He likes to be included in everything all the time. But uh, today's video brought to you by nothing, no paid advertising, because that's not what I do with this channel. I don't really monetize it. What, uh, what are we going to talk about today? What have I been up to in the last couple of weeks? You guys know if you've been following the live streams that more and more I've been excited about the opportunity and prospect to be fire. So that's the idea where I'll be financially independent and retired early, but actually the second part being most important because I've been the first part for a while, the financially independent piece. There's more to it than just the personal finance piece, right? There's wrapping up all the endeavors and things that you've been involved in. And so for myself, it's been finding clarity on the things that I like to do in my early retirement. Mm -hmm. Things I don't like to do. Talk to anyone from the city of London ever. So by law enforcement, rental licenses, any crap to do with any of that, I hate it. Tenants, I don't wanna to talk to tenants, I don't wanna have tenants, I'm tired of it. Um, I do still enjoy investing in real estate, but I don't to the extent that I have to deal with. Random fact, in London, Ontario, every single property has to have an annual rental license inspection. The rental license process isn't an easy one. You need fire inspection, you need bylaw, standards inspection, and they always find everything. Like every house in London has a bylaw infraction of some sort from a railing that's too short or too high, from a step that's the wrong size, from a ceiling height issue to something. Like there's always something. I've never done one that hasn't had something happen. And talk to friends who have never done a license inspection on a property older than 10 years old that hasn't had at least one deficiency come up. But anyway, the real problem is that you have to go and get drawings done of, to scale of your entire property, every floor, and submit that to the city. And that's required, every single rental property. Um, so just, City of London, they want affordable housing, but they don't wanna work with the landlords. They wanna make it as hard as they possibly can. And so that's been something that, just looking back and reflecting, on some rules in London. As an example, no house in London is allowed to have more than five bedrooms. There are thousands of houses in London that have more than five bedrooms, but it is the law. By law in London, you cannot have more than five. Um, why did I cut the flow? Good question. I was gonna just cut it shorter, but I started cutting it and I hacked it by accident, so then I just shaved it. Um, yeah, so, got some questions popping in here. Yeah, the dog's gonna bark because we're not gonna let him inside right now. But um, it's interesting how much regulation exists, especially in London, Ontario, around housing, around how much is involved in being a landlord. And so more and more, I think people will shift to Airbnb and then they'll regulate and license that and then it'll be so time or cost prohibitive that then people either you know raise the cost of that or they'll get out of it altogether. For myself personally, it, when I'm looking at, like most of the options are like lending, let's say the four main asset classes, right? Buying into private businesses that I can run, buying into public equities, so buying into stocks, right? 
buying into you know private real estate is a favorite of mine. And within real estate, there are lots of different segments. Like you could flip real estate as an example. You don't have to buy and hold or be a landlord. You can say, hey, I'm going to own real estate, but I'm not going to be a landlord, and that's okay. You can you can do that. It's a great way. Uh, and the last one is private lending. And within private lending, there are different segments too, right? Like you could do secured mortgage lending, where you're still investing in real estate, but you're not you're secured against title 75% loan to value, let's say, or some whatever percentage you feel comfortable with. But then if a downturn happens, your money's secured, it's safe uh, up to a certain percentage. Hopefully the whole amount is safe and hopefully the person you lent to just loses their down payment. So you're covered. And that's where more and more, I have opportunities that come to my lap where people are like, hey, um, you know, I'm looking at a B lender and B lender's charging me 7% with a 4% lender fee and there's tons of breakout fees. Mike, would, it would be cheaper if you just lent me at like 15% and secured against this project than me paying all those breakout fees when I go to flip a property or burr a property in six months. Like, hey, I'm gonna get a lender for it in six months, but right now the property is uninhabitable or it needs a huge renovation. And so I need a short-term financing option for a six month term and I'll pay you 15% interest. And this is very common. People are looking for this all the time. It's an affordable way to burr or flip. And uh, it's just those opportunities fall in my lap. And I look at those kinds of returns, like those 15, 16% returns that fall in my lap, sometimes 20%. And yes, maybe part of it's because I'm pretty connected to real estate, maybe. But those fall in my lap all the time. And then I look at my real estate portfolio. And after all the bullshit, after I adjust for fighting with tenants, landlord, you know, tenant board, I did Airbnb and with Airbnb, there's tons of damages. People destroy your houses and they disappear. They use credit cards that have $1,000 limits. So you can't even go after them for damages. Uh, that kind of stuff happens, right? And you factor all that in, you, you know, the cost to bring property managers on who are terrible, who will use the most expensive contractors you can ever find, who will overcharge you for everything. When you factor all that in, the net net from landlording, like as in doing rental properties for cash flow, can be around the same as private lending, but it's way more stressful and way more risky. So I'm feeling like risk to reward from private lending is just better. Um, now, real estate is a fantastic return if you flip or if you burr. Now, I just find that after I'm done my burr, after I've added value to the property, it doesn't make sense to hold it. It makes sense to move on with the money and you know, put that money to work. So that's why you've seen in my videos, I've been gravitating towards that asset class. It's also not the same thing that's wrong with real estate investing, because if you have a few properties, not a big deal. Like managing one or two or three properties, having a few tenants, that's not a big deal. It's when you have a huge portfolio that it becomes really, really taxing and really annoying. Um, and so that's where, for myself personally, diversification is a, is a huge piece. I need to be moving out of real estate and into public equities, into private companies, into you know lending, into other pieces, into other asset classes. I also have a public profile. And so tenants follow me on social media. And when they see that I'm a for-profit landlord helping other people reach financial independence, that's what I do, that's my channel. A lot of people who are tenants who don't have a lot of money, they don't like that, right? They think that, you know, the landlord's the enemy. And I think that's a wrong mentality to have. I think we should working together, but I've been a target on my social media uh, by neighbors, um, you know, people who just have to get you, tenants, you know, bylaw, et cetera. Everyone uses social media against me. And so I started this YouTube channel in hopes of helping people. And so far I've just hurt myself. I started my joint venturing business where I joint ventured with people, again, to help people reach fire and only ended up hurting myself in like a dozen situations. It seems the more I help people, the more it comes back to bite me in the ass uh, in a negative way. And so it's, I don't know, there must be a way to help people on the down low. Maybe that's the better way to do it because lately, or, or just what you say, I, I guess don't speak freely as I do. 
do scripted YouTube videos. You know, like there's a lot of guys out there who do their nice 10 minute pre-recorded videos. They do no lives. And like Graham, for instance, doesn't do any lives that I've seen and he does great without any YouTube live. Challenge is editing is a pain in the ass and I hate it. So that isn't really an option for me either from a lifestyle perspective. So anyway, that's where I'm at. That's the daily event or the weekly event, I guess, every Wednesday. Hey Kaylee, love the haircut. Oh, thanks, appreciate that. Cut my own hair. It actually saved time. It's not even about the money frugality piece. It's about, you know, I didn't have to drive anywhere for 20 minutes each way, save 40 minutes of transportation. I didn't have to wait in line for 20 minutes. I have to deal with the COVID crap, wearing a mask while I got my hair cut. Just cut my own hair. Um, and it was, it's not like, it's actually pretty uneven to be honest, but I'm gonna fix it up later. And I just wanted to get my, it was too long. I was getting in my, I had already trimmed it once in the front because the hair kept falling in my eyes, but even the side hair started to come into my eyes and it was getting really annoying. And so from a what's easiest perspective, I'm like, heck, uh, I'm just gonna cut it off and now I'm good for another nine months. I could have trimmed it just a little, left the flow, but uh, I don't know. I just felt like it was too much work to cut it that way. So I just didn't. But um, yeah, let's do some live Q&A. Blast it out this week. South London says, hey Mike, hey, how's it going? D How To says, greetings Mr. Roser. Hey, how you doing? William retracted his message, not sure what he said there, but. Trevor says, hey, hey, how you doing Trevor? Matt says, hey dude, hope all is well. Not sure if you got my LinkedIn, but I'm in London. Hope to catch up with you in person someday. Sure Matt, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to, to connect. The number of requests I get to go for lunch uh, and even people just want to pay to take me out to lunch. It's just, I think I have like 50 of those in my email. People offering to buy me sushi because they heard that I on YouTube that I like sushi. And I just don't have the time. Like my days just get consumed with crap. Uh, today I was summoned to go to provincial court over a property that I used to live in that has more than five bedrooms. Or it doesn't even have one. It has five bedrooms and three offices. Like, what do you want? You know, anyway, I guess in London, there's a bylaw. You can't have a property with more than five bedrooms. So that consumed a good portion of my day today. And then a couple of properties are closing. So I was dealing with some issues and trying, just getting rid of the properties that I have is such an endeavor, right? Like to get all the way to the finish line of closing on all these properties, things crop up, issues pop up. We got to fix those things. The disposal of all the properties that I have is going to be the mission over the next year. I wish it was like stocks where I could just click sell and have instant liquidity. But with real estate, it's quite a painstaking process to get the properties ready, to get photography done, to get them listed, and then to fight with the agents where they ask for this and that, and fix this and fix that, and the lawyers, you know, when you get to closing, there's all these problems that pop up, and then they, the deal falls through and you start again, and you waste all that time and go through the process to sell the properties. So I suppose if I just dropped the price significantly enough, they would just sell and no one would ask any questions, but I don't wanna say that I'm, I don't wanna leave money on the table for myself or, or for any partners, right? So we're trying to get maximum value, and that takes, effort, a lot of effort. So that's been my focus. Okay. COVID killed my job at events. Oh, bummer. Sorry to hear that. Looking for a new job, you got approved for a loan. The good news is if the job was killed by COVID, you qualify for CERB or for unemployment insurance, which is awesome. Gives you time to find your thing. Uh, what would be some good ones to help set up for success in house hacking? It's a good question. Um, Hmm. I suppose I would say, I don't know, any job in accounting could help. Any job where you're working with, oh, there's a lot of transferable skills in house hacking, right? Placing tenants requires people skills. Um, managing, you know, people requires people skills. Um, 
you know, construction, anything construction would be handy if you're owning a property. There's a lot of fix-ups you'll have to do if you want to insource it, especially in the beginning before you have the money to pay someone. Those would all be good jobs to look for. Good question. Andrew says, uh, hey, nice haircut. Why did you cut the flow? Well, it just, just kind of made sense. Um, you know, it was easier to pull up the buzzers than it was to try to cut everything. And to be honest, I didn't do the best job. There's a long spot right here in my hair, but I'll get it fixed up later. I'll take the scissors to it and trim it up. My personal, um, you know, I don't spend a lot of time on my personal looks. As you can tell, like I wear the same sweater like three times in a row. I just changed the undershirt and then like every two, three days I change the sweater. I have like four jeans that I cycle through. I'm not focused on, you know, I'm just focused on functionality. That's sort of my thing. Functionality. People wonder why housing is so expensive. It's because of regulations and interest rates. That's true, Trevor. Uh, well, interest rates are actually so low right now that they're helping boost the price of houses, which in turn then would boost rents. So interestingly enough, as house prices rise, rents tend to rise uh, as well. It's just a supply and demand piece. And uh, people like values of houses are inverses of net operating income, which is directly corresponded to the amount of uh, rental income. Looking at building manager jobs, also consider real estate or mortgage brokering, but how easy is it to get approved for a loan since lenders want to see salary, not commissioned jobs. Now, if you're looking to buy property, yeah, a salary job or a hourly job where it's consistent would be much better than something where you're commissioned. Commissioning, you're gonna need two years, two full years of income to show before you're gonna be in a position where you can qualify for an A lender. Now, there are B lenders who would probably still look at you, but you pay higher interest rates for that. So if you are looking to house hack, a good piece of that would be finding a job that is consistent and after six months in that job, you should be able to qualify for a mortgage. Uh, Matt says, in one of your videos, you and Matt talked about how he couldn't get a loan and needed a better job, and you said that isn't true. Can you expand on that? Well, by not true, I think what we were talking about is that there was other options besides the bank, a lender, right? But there are, in the A-lender category, there are a lot of different lenders. There's more than just the big five banks, right? Credit unions, as an example, make different you know, uh, decisions based on different rules. They're actually not governed by the same rules. As an example, the stress testing rules that came out, the big banks have to follow. It, that The credit unions, they do follow them, but they don't have to. They're not mandated to provincial and federally mandated uh, bodies. So that's an example. And there, there are B lenders, I think, is what more what I was talking about was that there's ways to um, you know, get a property or in his case, he's looking to get more properties. He could just went to a B lender and you know, at 5% bought more properties with or without the higher, better job. So yeah, there's lots of ways to be flexible and creative. And beyond that, you could just partner with someone. There's lots of other options to keep going past a certain number of properties, even if you don't have a job. Okay, next one. Why wouldn't they just use a one-year mortgage term break fee would be smaller? Andrew, I've had this debate myself, and I think one of the biggest pieces would be convenience. So when I go apply for an A-lender mortgage, I have to supply leases for every single unit. I have to supply documentation on every property I've sold in the last year, year and a half, every property I've acquired, uh, property tax bills, uh, mortgage statements, uh, 90 days of rent deposits. And by the way, if you have like 50 units, that is like a week of work printing and highlighting and sending all in. I've sent in hundreds of pages for mortgage applications. So if you have 10 or more properties, you don't want to go a lender because the task is going to cost you $20,000 in your time. So the cost is go call a private lender and say, hey, I've got this portfolio. Can you lend? Yes or no? Boom, done. You're not waiting, waiting. I used to go through two or three A lenders at once. And if one fell through because they didn't like it, a lot of the responses was you have too much real estate. You're too rich. 
We prefer if you're poorer and had a job. It's weird, but the banks prefer you to be one, you know, two weeks from being fired from your job than be wealthy. They don't like to lend to wealthy individuals as much as they like to lend to someone with a good job. I know it's crazy. It's like, hey, you have no job, but you're rich. Sorry, we can't lend to you. The income servicing stress testing rules. Sorry, can't help you. I, I know, I know. It's better if you're poor and have a job. Um, that's, that's just the way it is. So there's a lot of people in that category where it's just convenience, where the, you know, the private lender makes way more sense from a convenience standpoint. Um, two is just, again, time and energy invested. If you're going in the B lender route, which is very common, A lender, so I'll put it this way, A lenders don't want to finance burrs or flips. They don't. They want you to buy a property and that's it. They don't want you to come back and refinance. They don't want to be doing, you know, you flipping and discharging the mortgage. They're not in the business of doing any of that, right? They're just, they're focused on getting the mortgage deployed and then hopefully you pay it for the next five years because they're making so little interest. They don't have the money to keep redeploying that capital. It's very expensive for the bank to recall that mortgage when you pay it off if you sell the property and then redeploy it again to someone else. So if you do a few flips, the A lenders aren't going to touch you anymore. They're going to deem you a flipper and trader in real estate and they won't want to lend to you anymore. So in those cases where you're doing a flip or where you're doing a burr, it, it makes sense to go to a private lender. Someone like you know me, you come up to me and say, hey Mike, you know, for 12% in the first secure position, would you fund this? You know, 75% loan to value. I'll put up the down payment for 25%, you put up the 75%. I'm gonna finance you out, Mike, in six months with my A lender. Once it's done at X valuation, here are the comps to support that. You call me, you explain that to me, the deal's done that day. Instead of three weeks of back and forth with your lender, sending hundreds of documents back and forth, blah, blah, stuff, and then they say no in the end, or maybe they say yes, it, all of that stress you don't have to deal with, right? So that's part of why it makes sense to go to a, like a private guy to do private lending. And that's where that niche exists. Flippers can't get a lender financing, one, they're, that's what they do, right? So it's, the bank doesn't wanna to touch that. Now there's B lenders who will help them, but the B lenders will bake in these dirty, like I've seen, I've seen a 5% breakout clause on a six month mortgage or a one year mortgage. I think it's a one year private mortgage. Private mortgage is at like 8%. There was lender fees, they're already at 10% return because there's like lender fees built in. You have to pay for appraisals and legal. I don't even need an appraisal. In most cases, I'll value the property myself. Saves them 600 bucks right there. Um, so there's a lot of things that there's savings you can get on the private lending side. But um, yeah, the, the B lender sometimes is more expensive because the breakout fee can be 5% of the mortgage balance which in some cases that can be $15,000, $20,000 in breakout fees. Whereas a guy like me will have almost nothing in my breakout. Like you want to pay me back in six months? Cool. I want to get paid back. I don't want to hold, I don't want you to hold a mortgage for two years. I'm at the bank. I want to keep lending my money out. I want it to cycle quickly so I can make a quick application fee. So I get my money deployed and then get it back. And I'm willing to get, you know, I'm willing to do shorter mortgage terms like six months or nine months or a year or less because I charge a higher rate. And so I'm okay to cycle it every year. And that's the only, I guess, con that I can think of a private lending is that you have to keep your money deployed all the time. And so you're doing between six month and one year terms most of the time. And so it's annoying every year you got to find another place to park that money, another mortgage to put it in. And is that passive? No. If you want to hire, like I'm going to hire someone to do the due diligence for me and, and tee things up so that I'm not dealing with that. But I guess if you just hire a mortgage broker and a mortgage broker will charge the borrower a 1% lender fee and they'll do the mortgage for you. You call one, you call 10 mortgage brokers right now, go on Kijiji, type in mortgage brokers, private mortgages. You'll find 10 people in your area that do this. Like that's all they do. When their A lender falls through, they have mix and they have private investors that do that, right? And um, it's one of those things where it just makes sense to, 
to call those people sometimes and say, hey, do you have anyone looking for money? And they're like, yes, I have these two flippers who just got declined from B Lender. Deal closes in one week, can you fund? And you're like, yeah, I can fund, send out a commitment and get it done. And they do all the work for you. They take a lender fee, so you may only get like a 12% return, a 13% return, but they do all the work for you. So it depends on the kind of return you're looking for, but yeah, you just find a bunch of mortgage brokers in your area who do that and just get, have them lend your money out for you. So there are ways to make it completely passive in the same way as you could make landlording completely passive. I would argue it's much more onerous and higher risk to do landlording outsourced than it is to do private lending outsourced. Because with landlording, if your property manager screws up, you're liable. They'll take you to the landlord tenant board, not your property manager. And so you'll have to go, you have to appoint someone to go. And the money wasted in fighting, I've found, uh, makes a lot of 1% rule type properties nowhere near as profitable as you might think. I did a video on Facebook and Instagram a while back about how one, I broke down how 1% rural property, so a $300,000 property running for three grand a month, outsourced to a property manager, made no money, zero. I could probably upload the video, it was pretty poorly done, but I could upload the video I made on my phone with no editing to YouTube for the benefit of people. If, if there's enough demand, if you're watching this replay right now, 21 minutes, after the video is published, go in the comments in this video right here and say you'd like to see that video. If 20 people comment that, I'll post it, even though it wasn't well done. But it walks through how 1% rule property and 1% rule is the holy grail of rent to price. Like that kind of property is the best kind of property you can buy in London from a rent to price ratio, supposed to the highest net operating income. And I broke down how that kind of property with, you know, one unlucky placement, one unlucky tenant placement, which will happen, by the way, property managers aren't perfect. And when that happens, you will have no cash flow for a couple of years. And it's possible that these properties make nothing more than mortgage paid out of depreciation, even 1% rural properties. So sometimes if your goal is cash flow to retire on, the rental property strategy isn't as good as the private lending strategy. Just something, food for thought. Um, I've been running analysis on deals. Some of my deals have overperformed. Some of my deals have actually underperformed because of bad tenants. I spent years trying to evict a tenant, didn't pay rent. And my analysis on that property is extremely negative. Like we've not made any cash flow. Now, luckily I've added, I bought properties so under market value that, you know, the $200,000 properties were 400. So I've made enough money do like in the buy and in the renovation, but on the landlording side, on the cash flow side, there's been negative cash flow. And a lot of landlords are underreporting. I'm looking at some of the data I'm seeing from all my investors who hire property managers, and I'm seeing how much property managers are charging. Like, 200 bucks a month for snow and grass and like crazy amounts of money. In one, one case, it was $700 a month for snow removal. Just crazy stuff from property managers here. And the, the cost of the fees that I break down in that video, just the markups are insane from a maintenance perspective and all that, that it just destroys cash flow. And the result might be that it's better off selling your properties and doing private lending than it is to own your property and continue on landlording. And it's lower risk and it's you know less stress and Etc. and so forth. That was a good question. It got me into a rant. That got us into a good 23 minutes into the video. So I appreciate questions like that where you challenge me and say, hey Mike, you know, does private lending make sense? Who's actually taking these loans? And the goal is you're finding wealthy people. My target market are multimillionaires who can't get a lender financing. They're rich. I can secure their other properties if they didn't pay. They have a good brand on social media. That's the people I'm targeting. People know them well. They have kids who are ingrained in the school system who are not a flight risk. That's the type of person I'm looking to lend to. I'm not looking to lend the guy who's doing his first flip or his second property. I'm targeting the person who's done 10 of them already and the bank won't touch them. That's the person I wanna to lend to. And they're smart and they realize the value of their time. And they're like, hell, if I can call Mike and can finance my deal quickly, I can do 10 more deals in the time I can 
fight with the bank to get financing, then it makes more sense to flip or to burr or whatever. My portfolio, put the creative deals together. It makes more sense to go to the private lender and pay 15%. It's cheaper in the end from a return on time perspective. I can do three more deals this year because I called the private lender instead and I spent my time focusing on the high value skills, which is finding those off-market deals and transforming them and unlocking the value. So I wanna be a part of helping those guys and girls, because there are a lot of females in this space too, there are more than you might think, uh, who are doing that and fund them in their growth trajectory, helping them get to where I'm, uh, I guess now, or even beyond, right? And that idea for me is like, I'm still involved, I still get to be, and in many cases I'm planning to consult, so I'll be helping maybe do floor plans or helping with ideas or how to get, you know, the creative list that I'm looking for, I'd be happy to be involved as a lender partner, you know, maybe getting a consulting fee to bake in to the, the mortgage. So maybe they give me a couple percentage in, in uh, consulting fee. And I'm involved, but I'm not liable. That's the biggest piece. I don't want to be liable anymore. I see where Ontario's going from a landlording perspective. And I don't want to be owning properties when the communist socialist regime get in and put some rules in place that are already in place, but basically such that the tenant owns the property more than the landlord does. They have more right to our properties than we do. And if they don't pay rent, it takes a year to evict them. Like, and these guys are, they go on next property after that. There's nothing to stop them. Um, so anyway, that's just my rant about that. But thank you for the comment. I appreciate it. Next question. Went into my backyard the other day and I saw one of my ceramic roof tiles had blown off. Just one tile. Had a couple of windy nights. How would you estimate getting it done from different roofers. Well, I guess you bring a bunch in and see who would be willing to do the patch. Uh, maybe they have to take a couple of tiles up and I don't know if there's like a, a membrane underneath the roof, there probably is, and whether it's intact or not. So you have to see if that's intact and then just patching it. It's mostly the, my understanding is one of the ceramic roofs, there's a membrane. And if that membrane's intact, then the tiles on top pretty much just protect the membrane. And so they don't do a whole lot from a weatherproofing perspective. Um, but again, I'm not a expert on that. There'll be a roofing expert. You can bring in a couple that would probably do it for cheaper. William says, thank you for putting in the time. Hey, no problem, William. Yeah, some days I feel like it would just be nice to be on an island somewhere, you know? More and more, I think my end game is gonna be like a private compound. I'd be cool to be in London, but a private compound with like an acre around each way and a gate so that, you know, no one could come on my property without being buzzed in. And I just think that privacy would just be fantastic. I'm sick and tired of neighbors. I'm sick and tired. People are nosy and they're jealous and they're angry and, People so much hate in their hearts. I don't know why people call by law enforcement and why you know, people are like the way they are, but in my future, you know, private little island, whether it's a real island or it's made by trees all the way around my property, will give me that, that privacy that I'm looking for. And, and I can house hack in peace. <laughs> anyway, um, next question. I will keep going. I want to get through all these questions tonight, hopefully. Uh, do, do, do. Oh, lost my spot. Found it. Climbed up to the roof with a camera. I think an email video to roofers for estimates. There you go, do you have to? I think there's a lot of roofers who would give an estimate just by going up themselves and you know quickly come to the site. There, there are tons of free estimates you can get. Trevor says, I've been following for years and I really appreciate your work. You've helped me for what it's worth. Thank you, Trevor, I appreciate it. And I'm gonna continue on with these videos. And you know what, the haters can be damned. They're gonna find, it's been crazy. At the Leather Tenant Board, I've had people bring my videos bring my old blog and I shut my blog down, but people brought my blog posts in and be like, he's rich, therefore I should not have to pay rent. And I'm like, what? What kind of argument is that? Or like, he's rich, therefore not only should I not have to pay rent, but he should be fined. It's like, 
What? People attack, there's a socialist mentality. Like if you have resources, people wanna take them from you. And um, it turns out that being a capitalist in this country is something to be, I guess, feared or something. Like the socialists are really just attacking people who, like I, I solemnly, in my heart, believe the harder you work, the more you should be rewarded. Fact, like that's, that, that's a capitalist mentality, but a lot of people don't agree with that. And so I open myself up when I go on these live streams, right? People use things against me and take things out of context. I empathize with you, Mr. Rosehart, about helping people and getting a bit in the rear. It's true. The more you help people, the more, it's weird. Like sometimes you'll try to help someone from drowning, as an example, right? You, 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 they say put your own air mask on first, right? But you help some people from drowning and you jump in to save someone and they'll put your head under and they'll, to try to save themselves, they'll drown you. That's what happens when you try to help people. They'll drown you. And I learned that the hard way, partnering with people and trying to teach them, you know, in joint venture partnerships and things like that. I've had situations like that where people just want to drown you. And uh, it's tough. You know, you think people want the best. It's like, hey, I appreciate any help that you, that you can give me. And then, you know, not expect. But people get this mentality where they expect. You give someone something once and then they expect. And it's like there's a constant expectation. An expectation setting something I've never been good at. But it's like, I wish I could expectation set and say, hey, like I'll help you so long as, as long as it fits in my schedule, as long as I can help you. But people will want to take to the point where they try to take from my own family and try to take from, you know, what I have. And it's, it's sad and I wish, wish the world wasn't like that, but it is what it is. All we can do is just try to keep giving and I've got to set boundaries and learn to say no. That's something that, you know, I'm working on and try not to publicize anything about my personal, um, you know, investments and things like that because people are out there to get you. Do you personally invest in a whole life insurance as an asset? No, but I'm looking into it. Uh, there are some really cool tax benefits when you're an ultra high net worth individual where you can borrow money back out and it can make sense. I think for anyone less than a 50% tax rate, it shouldn't make sense. Um, the benefits aren't there. And that's from someone who used to be licensed um, to sell insurance. Hey Mike, how have you been? Great to join your live chat. Hey, great to have you on. Thank you for jumping in. Braden says, last week you referred to a medical business you purchased. Curious what type of medical business it is. How do you find the business and what type of deal did you? I can't speak about it. I'm under NDA. Um, so I won't violate that. and I won't get into depths there and end up shoot myself in the foot. Uh, the more I, I've talked about things on here before, and you wouldn't believe the spam emails we get. Um, Top Sissa says, what's a good average for cash flow per unit on multifamily in London or Hamilton? Uh, hit the like button for my man. Thank you. Good average cash flow. Um, that's so hard, right? It's a percentage of purchase price. So I think the ultimate would be like a 10 cap rate property. Those types of properties though, tend to have the most headaches. So because I've always acquired those high cash flow properties, I've always ended up inheriting bad tenants and the landlord tenant board had to fight. I've ended up inheriting, you know, problems in the property that I've had to fix. I end up inheriting the city bylaw issues. So I'm I'm disproportionately dealing with a large number of bylaw issues and with rental license issues and fire inspection issues and bad tenants because I bought properties that cash flowed really well that had high lift potential. So most of my portfolio was like the problem properties that no one wanted. That was like my, my target type of property to buy. And so I've dealt with a disproportional amount of bullshit and it's burnt me out and it's made me sour because I've dealt with so much of it. But again, that's, that was my choice. I chose to buy those properties and try to turn them around. That business of buying high cash flow properties and turning them around is a stressful one and I wish it on no one. It's a short term thing you try to get out of once you've made some money. <laughs> uh, but what do you expect, I guess? It's all relative. So there's no 
there, I guess there are properties that are better, um, worse cash flow, better return on time. And sometimes the one with the better cash flow ends up being the worst cash flow because the tenant doesn't even pay rent or because they do $10,000 in destruction damage and you didn't factor those things in, right? So sometimes the 1% rule properties are more of a problem in the bad areas than the good properties that were half a percent rule. They ended up cash flowing worse and that's not the intention. You bought them for the cash flow. And so it's a weird thing that I sort of discovered, but it's a reality. Russell says, do you think it's a good return on time building a YouTube channel? No. Full stop, no. Uh, okay. I've been making videos, something in my mind I think could be helpful for networking side of things. So Russell, I'll say this. 99% um, of people who start businesses, YouTube business included, lose money. 99% like don't make money in their first year, probably even their second year. Um, so a large, large, I know it's 99%, I'm just, I'm being a bit facetious. It could be 90% or 95%, but the lion's share of businesses fail. Now don't let that discourage you, but what I'll say is this, the amount of hours I've put into YouTube have made less than minimum wage. The, I'll say that again. And I've been doing this since, I don't know what, like, will be three years this February, I think. And I mean, I mean, I didn't go at this with a business plan the way, you know, Kevin did or the, like me, Kevin, or the way, you know, Graham did or even a bunch of other guys who have done this, like Matt McKeever has a team of people that do his editing and like he literally ran his courses to pay so he could have people to focus on a YouTube channel doing a video a day. I didn't come at YouTube with a business plan. I came at YouTube with a goal to help people. Now for a time, I was really focused on how to optimize to beat the algorithm. There was that one video I released that got 150,000 views. And I did it to try to prove to myself that I could make a video that got more, more than 100,000 views. There's a lot of work that goes into that. And the algorithm's always changing. So what I'll say is this, the guys like Graham Stephan and me, Kevin, who've had great success on YouTube, it's been worth it for them because they made it big. Um, but they've put, they were working 50, 60 hours a week, I'm sure, in total time in the beginning. And by the way, they also had talent. So they were working hard and they had talent. They were likable good on camera, they had great ideas, good scripts, et cetera, so forth. And they're the 1%. So my point is, what was my point? For most people, YouTube won't be worthwhile. But there are some advantages, I guess, to YouTube, um, sort of extraneous benefits or like uh, tangent benefits that are not, you know, like YouTube revenue, as an example, is not a way to make money. But if I was selling courses, I could monetize the YouTube channel. Uh, I think it's a bit of a sellout, so I just don't do it. But you know, I could see the value. Maybe someday I will sell courses. It's infinitely scalable and, you know, a much better uh, business, I guess, uh, plan than the one that I have. But I, I again, I don't treat this as a, as a business. I treat this as, you know, I'm trying to help people. And if it generates some money, cool. My primary intention has been just to give away content and knowledge. And I guess because I didn't have a business plan, that's why I haven't had as much success. But when I was focused on, you know, releasing multiple videos a week, right? You guys remember that? for a time, I was experiencing more growth, I guess, on my channel. And you could say that eventually you get to a critical mass point where your brand has a good amount of value and you could leverage that to borrow money. You could, and I, I guess I could do that now. Like my brand is pretty valuable. That There are a lot of people out there who know my YouTube channel, who know, my, you know me on Instagram, and I could ask them for money and they would lend to me without seeing anything, just knowing who I am. So I could, I guess, borrow against my brand in some senses. I haven't really monetized that. I haven't really gone that route at all. Um, but I suppose it's always there, that option. You, you could use it to build a presence and then leverage that 
I, I would say if I was lending to people as a private lender and they had a YouTube channel, forget the YouTube channel, they had a social media presence like Instagram and I could see what they were up to on a daily basis, I'd be much more confident lending to that person than if they didn't. So all the people that I like to lend to, I like to see that they're on social media. I like to see what they're up to on the daily on Instagram. I almost require it. Like I wish I could put it in my lending agreement and say, hey, like you have to post on Instagram every day so I can see what you're up to. Um, it's a great way to keep tabs on people you're lending to and your investment in that person and in that person's you know, financial journey. Okay, well, there's a lot more questions. I thought I was gonna get caught up, but I'm way, way behind. Um, okay, I'm gonna go down and find out where I was. Okay, found it. My friends and I are looking to invest in rental properties as partners. What corporate entity would you recommend to limit liability but avoid double taxation? In the beginning, get a good insurance policy to protect yourselves. Don't buy properties with a bunch of friends. Like having three, four people on a property, even like more than two people on a property, sounds like a recipe for disaster and conflict. It sounds like it's gonna end in poorly. So my, I guess my bet, my first set of advice is don't do that. Um, but if you're gonna do that, uh, definitely in the first couple of properties, just do it personally. Don't waste the money you set up a corporation and whatever, because then you're gonna pierce the corporate veil and the shareholders are gonna be liable anyway. So you're not only protecting yourself from the liability perspective, and the taxation of owning properties in a corp is not advantageous unless you're flipping and it's your active business and that's what you're doing. If you guys are starting a business together to flip properties, then you should open a corp and you get tax advantages for that. But you need to start having employees, you need to start focusing on real estate as an active business. If that's your plan, and it's not to rent out properties and do passive, if you're actively trying to turn real estate assets around, then a flipping corp makes good sense. But um, Primarily, I'd say the first couple of deals, just do them in your personal name. And you know, when you file your 2776, just claim your business partners and away you go. Start with one, see if you really like it, give it a year. Um, if you can do them by yourself, way better to do three properties. Each of your friends do one by themselves. Maybe you help each other out on the properties, but you have it just in your name. And you say, hey, we're gonna each help each other 50-50, get some more fun or something, cool, do that. But it doesn't make sense to buy like six properties and you each be on all the properties. It just makes it way convoluted for lenders. It makes it really hard later on. There's a number of reasons why it doesn't make sense and I wouldn't do that. Trust my experience. Don't do that if you can avoid it in any way. William says, Mike, interested in how you don't over improve but still do a good job. Thank you for any thoughts. William, I'm gonna give you a good example. Um, how you not over improve. A really good way to not over improve. You walk in, the tub is pink. Everyone's like, I'm getting this bathroom. Oh my God, don't do that. Get a guy to come in, they have an enamel spray and spray the tile, spray spray everything. Spray the tile, spray the wall tile, spray the tub, it'll be nice white, it'll be a beautiful bathroom. Change out the toilet. Maybe paint the vanity and put new handles on it. That's an example of like, that renovation gets you the same refis if you rip everything out and put it in a new, new tub. Um, it ends up the same value at the end. And so people spend way too much over renovating when they could just do it cheap. Or another example, people are like, oh, I gotta take this tile out. I gotta take this tile out so that I can, you know, like I'm gonna put new floors in, I want no transitions. Lay your, lay your vinyl plank right over top of the existing tile. Go right over top of the existing hardwoods. Don't rip it out, just put it right over top and then put a transition strip between them. It'll look beautiful. You know, paint the kitchen cabinets, they'll look beautiful. Put nice new modern stainless steel hardware on it. It'll look beautiful and it'll do, be done at one tenth the cost. Uh, how do you over, over renovate by definition is when you spend too much, when you make places too nice. Don't do that. Um, you know, you put in the really nice bougie, you know, glass, you know, whatever, nicest tile, and the tenants are gonna crack it anyway. 
they're gonna break it anyway in five years. And so you're just wasting your money, wasting your time. I've learned that in many situations, it makes sense to do you know, a cleanup and make the property with new floors and nice paint, make it nice, provide a decent place for people to live, that's important. Um, whenever I have a unit vacate, I bring it up to a certain standard. And that certain standard is usually new floors, paint, fix anything broken, new appliances, and clean up cabinets and kitchen, whatever, replacing that's broken or they broke doors or stuff. Get it all repaired and then you rent a nice quality unit. But if you go too far, that's when you have issues. Quartz, I've seen tenants stain quartz. I thought it was impossible. But even with Vim, couldn't get some stains out. They burned pots to the quartz. Sometimes doing quartz is an over-renovation. You don't need it. On some of the B and C units, the market doesn't value that. If all the other comps in the area are all laminate counters and you go granite, yours isn't worth more than theirs. Your company needs laminate, so don't put the granite in. But if all the neighbors have granite counters and you're the only house with laminate, get the granite counters. That's, I guess, the analogy that we'll use. Next one here. Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot. Did you take an option trading? No, I haven't. Are you interested? I know I did that question. What's up, Karan? Good to see you on. Andrew, good to see you on. Yona says, wow, what a nice office. I know, I know, my basement is just, you guys don't know, I kinda turned down the mentee program and I'm not looking for any new applicants. I just kinda shut it down from a lifestyle perspective. Um, so here's one of the mentee rooms in my basement, just empty. It's a walkout basement, so it looks like it's, um, it is main floor, I guess, technically, like we're grades down there, so we're above grade. Yep, this is, the YouTube channel rents this office for a dollar a month. I should make a nice studio, if anyone has any ideas and wants to help, I could like put a nice couch there or something. We could, we could do some cool setups here, if I ever get the time to do that. <laughs> what is property like now in Canada? Um, that's a bad question. There are so many different types of property. Ling says, I wish I had your life. Oh, thanks, Ling. You say that, and it might look nice because I have money that, you know, my life is so great, but in reality, I wake up to constant stress. There is a fight every day with someone for something. There's always a daily drama struggle that I'm fighting through. I have stress levels that are way above most people's. Now I'm working towards reducing that, and most of the stresses are self-imposed, and I've created them upon myself by taking on ventures and opportunities that I shouldn't, um, or maybe, I wouldn't say shouldn't, but yeah, I'll just say shouldn't. Uh, Nish says, uh, what are your thoughts on holding a small percentage of net worth in Bitcoin as a hedge against currency risk? I mean, I prefer just to hold a, a little bit of silver, uh, you know, the poor man's gold, as opposed to like a, a cryptocurrency against, you know, a, a currency fled, uh, hedge because it's, it's tangible. Like you can physically spend that anytime you want, that piece of silver. And I, I physically keep it in a safe. And that's what I do. Um, or barely get somewhere important in a safe underground where you know, it's difficult for people to rob it. And even if they did, there'd be a safe that couldn't crack. But um, yeah, that'd be my advice. I don't believe in, in the cryptocurrencies in the same way that I do like a tangible asset like silver. Now, I don't really believe in, in silver and gold that much either. Such a small percentage of my net worth would ever go into that. But yeah, I mean, you could have a very small percentage of your net worth in crypto and it's just not a very good investment. I think we'll have bigger problems if currency destabilizes <laughs> than, uh, than that. Great chat as always. Thank you, appreciate that. Good question. 
Alex says society really hates landlords. True. How do you identify areas with the city to invest for future application or appreciation? Neutral or slight positive cash flow? Can you talk about tax implications for house hacking? Um, Golfy ball, yeah, I mean, if you have a separate unit that you don't occupy, then that's, I guess, that percentage of the house for the time that you rented it out would be, uh, would not qualify. But if you just rented out a couple of rooms in your house, then there would be not much from a capital gains perspective, I wouldn't think. Um, yeah, so as far as like appreciation, look for where there'll be job growth, whether it be population growth, where more people will be moving. So I think that there's gonna be exodus from places like Toronto, people are gonna move out of the big cities. London's receiving a lot of new people coming in from say Toronto, where they can find cheaper housing. And so it makes sense, I think, to you know base your appreciation predictions on population demographic changes. People are just jealous, don't listen to them. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, people try to tear you down. You know, it gets to you. Ah, P-Man says, I'm based out the lower mainland in BC, detached market is on fire here. I don't know what the implications of this would have for business and the economy since people who don't make a lot of money barely get by. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. In certain areas, it's, it's really tough for, for people to get by and um, yeah, from a, a business perspective, the higher the house prices go, the better it is for the overall economy. It just pours money in from a job creation perspective. Real estate is one of the main um, seekers of money. Oh, someone just super chatted. Four ninety nine. Thank you, Nicholas. Appreciate that. Nicholas Daniels says, I'm 21 with $100,000 in no debt. By the way, that already puts you in top 1% for your age. So congrats on that. You're already in the top 1%. If you stay on track where you are, you have about $12 million by the time you're 60. If you stay in that top 1% category. Um, 65, I think it is. Should I buy a house and rent out rooms and eliminate my housing expense? How to fire the fastest? It's a good question. I think a big piece of it is risk to reward and then overall personality and goals and risk tolerance and all of that come into play fundamentally. I think real estate is a fairly stable asset, so I like to recommend it personally. Um, it's relatively uh, illiquid, so it's hard to spend the money once you've locked it up. And so that's the great thing, right? You can take a hundred grand and you can buy a $400,000 property or $500,000 property with 20% down payment fairly easily. Maybe don't tie up all your money, maybe leave a little bit available so you can do renovations or have some you know, emergency funds. But yeah, you could, that's one example. You could you buy a nice property. The beautiful thing is if you live in it, it's a tax-free growth investment. Have a couple of rooms or buddies to help you offset costs and live for almost free. Even if you're living for, let's say your total mortgage and everything after your couple of rooms rented out to friends, costs you a thousand bucks a month. Hey, you're living, you're building equity, you have mortgage paid down on the property, appreciation. And it teaches you something about, you know, how to run a, a property, how to run, it's almost like running a business in some senses. And so I think it's a great way to, and by the way, thank you for the super chat. And everyone who's watching this knows that if you super chat, your question gets priority and guaranteed. I'm ending the stream in two minutes, just letting you guys know we're almost there. But um, yeah, I think that, that uh, it's definitely a way you could get your money growing and, and rolling for you. If you get housing expense down to zero, then you'd be able to save everything you make as you continue to work and invest and whatever, you're 21, so you're so young that you could take that hundred grand. You could, there's other things you could do too. If you didn't want to own a house, have the responsibility and the maintenance of taking care of a place, you could just rent a cheap apartment and get a roommate and then take the hundred grand and do a private mortgage with the hundred grand and get 15% return. So that's what, 15 grand a year. It's over a thousand dollars a month, which might be enough to pay your rent with your roommates. You're living for free just by doing private lending. You don't have to own a house, but you won't get the appreciation lift it's, I think, essential. You won't get the leverage lift. 
in the same way. And again, I don't know if you qualify for a mortgage or not, or what house prices are where you're living, but um, it could make sense. It might make sense, it might not. Uh, if you're in like the, the Midwest, in the US, you can find houses for like 200 grand. And so, you know, 100 grand could buy you a couple of properties, depending on where you live. And you can start doing real estate as a, as a job. Um, or as a business, if they could, you know, build wealth for you, you could turn a hundred grand into two, three, four hundred thousand, right? And the nice thing with real estate is you're in control. That's what I love most about, you know, even lending is you're in control. In the stock market, you're betting on management to perform on an action plan. That's also your investment is also hedged against how the market performs. You know what Trump says tomorrow, or you know what the next virus or whatever. All these things impact you in a big way. The market movements impact your investment. Even if what you're buying is solid, the market might not value it, and so your stock price goes down. Whereas with real estate, you have predictable cash flow you can control, and, and you're in control of making that asset work. You can start a business too, but that's high risk, I would say, at 21. More than likely, your first business at 21 fails, and so I don't want, I don't want you to throw all your money into a business, um, but maybe get into a financial position where you're, you're house hacking, so you're living for free, and now you don't need to work as hard to make money to support yourself. You've got that property that's supporting yourself, and you can take on those new entrepreneurial gigs and develop skills and all that kind of stuff. Um, the only way to guarantee you'll not lose money in the stock market is by paper trading, period. I mean, you can still lose money by trading paper. You could just lose a little bit of money, right? Like, worst case, like the options contracts just expire, right? And you've just lost the cost of, of writing that contract. But yeah, I guess your downside would be limited. Even when you buy stocks, you can put a stop loss in, so the stock automatically sells at more than a 5% drop or something, you set the limits. So there are ways to limit your downside when you're investing in equities, but again, you're not in control in the same way you are. You're investing in the asset. You're not, you're investing in someone else investing in the asset as opposed to you being the manager yourself or you being in full control. That said, I'm still a fan of buying equities. I'm still a fan of investing in businesses, but I think that you know putting all your net worth in it might not be the smartest play for the most return to risk. I think I've got most of the questions here. I'm at my two minute mark. I think I got most of this stuff covered here. If I missed your question, just throw the question in the bottom of the comments after this video. As always, you know the catchphrase that you say at every single video, the secret to unlocking all through you is three levers. What you spend, so spend less. What you earn, so find ways to earn more with side hustles, things like real estate, whatever and then maximize returns on the difference. And that becomes more important as you build net worth. The more return you can get on your money, the more impactful it will be on your retirement and your overall lifestyle. So spend less, earn more, and maximize your returns, guys. And I'll see you next week. And I'll see you in the comments. And on Instagram, at Mike Rosart. Bye, everyone.